Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, and welcome back to the Sassy Speculum. I'm your host, Adrian. I'm a fourth year medical student in Portland, Oregon. And today we're going to be talking about female sexual dysfunction, or FSD for short, because why not shorten everything? We'll discuss what it is, because it's more than just low libido. We'll discuss the different types, the evaluation, how it's treated, differences between lube and moisturizers, hormones, and controversy, and blah, 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 blah. We're going to go deep and dirty with all of this talk today because women, and honestly men too, deserve to know what's going on and why it's happening. I do have to preface this discussion, as usual, with the fact that I am just a medical student and nothing that I say today or in any episode for the next year is medical advice and you should always talk to your doctor before making any health changes. First things first, I want to deeply apologize for the lateness of this episode airing. I went on some very, very deep rabbit holes for you guys to try and better understand neurobiology, which put me behind schedule with getting this out to you. And then I came down with the flu, from which I am now recovering from, if you notice that my voice sounds really funny. Um, If there's anything that I learned from this week, it's don't get the flu. It's terrible, and it knocked me flat on my butt for multiple days. Stay as absolutely far away from the flu as you can. It sucks. Anywho, this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As many of you know, especially if you've listened to the anxiety episode, I have had and currently have my fair share of anxiety, and I've also dealt with mental health stuff for most of my life. For the past few years, I've spent way too much time stuck in my head. Thanks, COVID. But it's caused me to do quite a bit of reflecting on my problems, and for the first time since I was a kid, I've bit the bullet and admitted that I need therapy. And I actually started therapy on Monday. So by the time that you guys are listening to this, I will have already had my head shrunk, maybe even multiple times, depending on how slow you are to listen to episodes. But I truly value therapy, and I know how helpful it can be for everyone, and everyone should have some sort of therapist to bounce ideas off of. Now, with BetterHelp, you can meet with a therapist in as little as 48 hours of signing up. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire to assess your specific needs, and you'll be matched with a therapist super fast. Before I moved to Portland, I went to one therapy session, and I instantly knew that that was not the therapist for me, so I just gave up. But with BetterHelp, if you don't like your therapist, you can just request a new one at no additional charge, no matter how many sessions you have had or haven't had with them. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, overwhelmed, or just want to talk with somebody, BetterHelp is here to help you, and you can get 10% off of your first month by going to betterhelp.com slash sassyspeculum. That's betterhelp.com slash s-a-s-s-y-s-p-e-c-u-l-u-m. The link is also in the show notes of this episode for easier access. All right, that's enough housekeeping for now. I'm ready to dive into FSD. Are you? I do recommend listening to episode two of Sassy Speculum for my orgasm episode. It'll be really helpful in understanding some of the nuances in today's episode, and I reference it a lot, but as always, all of the information given should be easily accessible and void of medical jargon, as that is the goal of this podcast to educate those outside of the medical field to better understand their own bodies and the bodies around them. So hopefully it should be pretty understandable. So what is female sexual dysfunction? Well, the definition officially is being unable to participate in a sexual relationship as she would wish, causing marked distress and interpersonal difficulty. 
Those last two pieces are the most important part. If someone doesn't want to bang their partner, and their partner doesn't want to bang them either, and they're both totally okay with a no-bang relationship, then there's no dysfunction in that situation. There has to be marked distress or interpersonal difficulty attached to the situation for it to quote-unquote count as FSD. In a very widely cited study from 1999, forever ago, I know, researchers discovered that 43% of women between the ages of 18 and 59 suffer from FSD, with middle-aged women between the ages of 45 and 64 being most affected. Then, in 2000, in a study of 975 women, 90% of the respondents reported at least one sexual concern. The first study proving 43% is still today the most widely cited study of FSD prevalence. Even though both of these studies were performed decades ago, the likelihood of this number decreasing over the past two decades is unlikely and has most likely increased. However, in a bit, I'm going to dive into some controversy with these numbers and the diagnosis in general, so hold tight. First things first, let's understand what FSD is a little bit better. There are four different types of sexual disorders. They are sexual desire disorders, meaning low libido, sexual arousal disorders, meaning the want is there but the vagina isn't, orgasmic disorder, and sexual pain disorders, both of which I feel are fairly self-explanatory. As of 2016, the first two categories have been lumped together and it's now called female sexual interest and arousal disorder. This female sexual interest and arousal disorder has to be persistent for a minimum of six months it cannot be better explained by a mental disorder, severe relationship stress, or other stressors, and it cannot be due to a substance or medication, and you also have to have a lack of at least three of the following. Interest in sexual activity, sexual or erotic thoughts or fantasies, initiation of sexual activity and responsiveness to a partner's initiation, excitement or pleasure in at least 75% of all sexual activity, interest or arousal in response to internal or external sexual cues, or genital or non-genital sensations during sexual activity and at least 75% of all sexual encounters. Remember, that was a lack of at least three of those things. If you can answer yes to lacking at least three of those parameters and meet the other mentioned criteria, congratulations, you just won a diagnosis of FSD. Welcome to the club. Maybe we should start a Facebook page to connect all of us women who fit into that category. This category makes up approximately 36% of all FSD, making it the largest category. If you want to break up that category into the old classifications, there are two different desire disorders, hypoactive sexual desire disorder, aka low libido, and sexual aversion disorder, which is recurrent distress with genital contact with a partner. Arousal disorders, on the other hand, are an inability to get or keep sexual excitement. Remember in episode two, the restaurant analogy? Your brain says that this is a restaurant and I want to eat here, but your vagina isn't on board and maybe thinks that this is an auto parts store instead, or vice versa. There aren't different versions, if you will, of arousal disorders, and I apologize, this might get a little listy, but there's a lot of them, and they include generalized sexual arousal disorder, when you're not excited mentally or vaginally, this might be due to a loss of testosterone activity as smooth muscle relaxation needed for genital response is influenced by testosterone, but we'll see if that's actually true. The second is persistent genital arousal disorder, which was explained, I think, in episode two as well. I'm not sure which episode it was, um, but it's where women have orgasms without an organic cause and they can just pop off randomly. 
Women with this condition have said that they would rather die than have another orgasm. That's how bad it is. Then there is missed arousal, where one feels like nothing is exciting, but there is a genital response, so your vag knows that this is a restaurant and that we could eat here, but your brain is focused on other things, like literally everything else going on in women's lives, or medication, or basically anything that hits your sex breaks. Next is dysphoric arousal, where there is an arousal mentally or genitally, but you absolutely hate the fact that it's happening which in general will cause you to either disassociate, which is what happens most frequently in rape and sexual assault cases, or you will stop the stimulation if you have that capability in the situation. And finally, anhedonic arousal, where there is an expected brain and vag response to the stimuli, but you just don't really care. The next broad category of dysfunction are the orgasmic disorders. These are characterized as a marked delay in, infrequency of, or lack of orgasm, or a significantly reduced intensity of orgasm. This can happen from a primary source, meaning that one has never been able to orgasm, or a secondary source, which is generally a result of another sexual dysfunction and is treated by fixing the original problem. The third official category of dysfunction are pain disorders. These include pain with sex and vaginismus, which is an involuntary spasm of the vaginal musculature. Both of these pain disorders I'll talk about later, but right now I want to stick with the first two. So by this point, especially if you've been listening to Sassy Speculum from the beginning, you probably know by now that there is rarely a single reason for these problems, and most commonly, especially in our society, we as women have about 8 million sex breaks coming at us every single day, and I hope that you remember that in fact most of these different categories of disorders are actually common and there is nothing actually wrong with you. You are in fact normal if any of those sounded like you. As women, we need much more than men do to be aroused, and our society has taught us that if your sexual interest or arousal capabilities is any different than that of a man's penis jumping up to salute at the drop of a bra strap, that there's something wrong with you. As I'll get to later on, there is actually no dysfunction most of the time, and female sexual dysfunction as a diagnosis was entirely created by drug companies. And heads up, for the most part, when I'm calling these disorders, there's a humongous eye roll going on over here. I just don't have a better word for it, but we'll get there in a bit. On top of all of the daily metaphorical sex breaks, like our persistent to-do list, for example, there are literally so many risk factors that increase the chances of having one or more of the previously listed disorders. The most obvious ones are getting older due to menopausal changes and vaginal atrophy. Then there's genital surgery and female genital mutilation, which obviously are changing the structure, the blood flow, nerve supply to the area, so there will most likely be a huge change in function with these changes. There are also quite a few diseases that increase the likelihood of FSD occurring. The most important one in our country is cardiovascular disease. If you have high blood pressure, the diabetes, or your doctor has talked with you about elevated lipid or cholesterol numbers, you are 90% more likely to experience some form of FSD. That is huge! In our country, as there are currently 82.6 million people in the United States with cardiovascular disease, it's our most common grouping of disorders and the leading cause of death for both men and women in our country. There are also psychological factors, which we'll get to, interpersonal situations, cancer, endocrine disorders, gastrointestinal, urologic, 
uh, rheumatologic, neurological disorders, and the list could literally go on and on and on, hitting every single organ system in the body and more. Another huge problem in our country is the effect of medications on one's ability to enjoy and experience sex. That birth control pill you were prescribed at 16 to help with your heavy periods, but you were really just excited about now being able to let your freak flag fly with every boy in school. Don't worry, mom, that wasn't me. Um, but guess what? One of the side effects is low libido. If you live in Oregon for more than five years, I know for a fact that you've taken an antihistamine at least once in your life. I lived in the grass seed capital of the world in college, and I popped allergy medicine like they were candy for a large chunk of my life. You know what a side effect of that is? Low libido. This list could go on and on. There are so many drugs that people take every single day that affect their libido, their ability to orgasm, their vaginal lubrication, and most have no idea. Check out my Instagram after this episode to see all of the types of medication that can cause FSD. You might be surprised to find your daily medications on there. I bet some of you are thinking right now, but wait a second, what about antidepressants, Adrian? Everyone knows that those significantly affect libido. And you're right. Antidepressants straight up have correlations with FSD for a very clear reason, but you're rushing ahead a little bit. Antidepressants get their own time on the stage once we talk about hormones, because their correlation is strictly because of hormones, and we have to understand hormones before we can understand that correlation. So let's talk hormones involved in desire, arousal, and orgasm. I honestly thought that hormones was going to be one of my very first topics on Sassy Speculum, because I thought that it was such an important foundational concept to understanding your own body, and I do still believe that, and every week when I'm writing each episode, I curse myself for not already doing them, because I literally talk about hormones in every single episode, but I also get too excited when I come up with a new idea to talk about, and I just can't keep that excitement down. So one of these days, we will get a complete overview of all the hormones in our bodies and how they affect processes in our bodies, but for now, you get to dip your toes into the hormone water every episode. So, hormones are chemicals that zoom through your blood into your organs, your muscles, your skin, and other tissues to tell them what to do and when to do it. They affect hundreds, if not thousands, of bodily processes and can often work together in a chain reaction to get you where you need to go. When it comes to desire, the main hormone that tells your brain and body that you're horned up is dopamine. Dopamine is our reward system. It tells the brain, if I do this, I will be rewarded and feel good. It's the feel-good hormone, and it gives you a sense of pleasure and motivation to do something to continue feeling that good. So, as you can imagine, a healthy person in a healthy situation would see a sexual encounter, and their body and brain would say, hey, if I engage in this, it'll feel good, so let's get this a-going. Estrogen and progesterone also play a role in increasing desire on their own, but dopamine is the star player. There are other hormones that can either tell dopamine to go, 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 or no, no, no. The two go, go, go hormones to dopamine are melanocortin, which makes its own peptides that a deep Google hole just took me on, and I'm not going to try and explain it all to you. Google it yourself if you care. And testosterone. Luckily, we've all heard of that. Opioids have a strong no-no-no signal to both testosterone and the desire component in general. Once again, a strong contribution of the opioid epidemic having complex effects on every aspect of the human body. Prolactin kind of sends the no-no-no signal to dopamine, but also dopamine sends that signal right back to prolactin. 
Prolactin is a key regulator of hormones, and it also stimulates breast development and milk production in women. Dopamine tells prolactin to stop producing itself, so the more dopamine that's hanging around, the less prolactin is released, and vice versa. The biggest no-no-no inhibitory hormone for dopamine is serotonin. Both dopamine and serotonin do similar but opposite things. As previously mentioned, dopamine controls motivation and desire, as well as cravings, but it also influences mood and sleep and learning, movement, alertness, blood flow, and randomly urine output. Serotonin regulates the sleep-wake cycle, also mood and emotion, metabolism and appetite, your ability to think and concentrate, body temperature and blood clotting. High levels of dopamine can lead to feelings of absolute euphoria and bliss, which is why drugs and activities that increase dopamine are so easily addictive. Dopamine and serotonin often have opposite effects. While one makes you hungrier, the other tells you that you're not hungry. Or while one increases chances of being compulsive and jumping off a building, the other puts you in bed and tells you not to move. Backing up a bit to our previous topic of drugs that affect sexual function, SSRIs have a huge and well-known effect on libido, arousal, and even the ability to orgasm. This is because the job of SSRIs, which stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, is to keep serotonin around longer within the cells in order to decrease depression. If serotonin is continuously hanging out in high levels, your body is being told, hold on, we got serotonin, we don't need you dopamine, go back into your dark hole in the brain. While many people who stop SSRIs do see a gradual return of their sexual functioning after they stop taking the SSRIs, some people experience what's called post-SSRI sexual dysfunction syndrome, in which these side effects persist for months and even years. Obviously, mental health is incredibly important, and if you are depressed, taking an SSRI might be the best option for your situation, and that can be life-saving for many reasons. It's unfortunate, however, that choosing one aspect of your mental health forces you to potentially have to close the door on another aspect of physical, emotional, and mental health. Not medical advice, but I'd recommend doing your research and talking to your doctor about other options to help with depression and anxiety as there are thousands out there other than SSRIs. And as we talked about in episode 3, women experience mental health disorders very differently than men do, especially in a biochemical manner. So there is a large chance that an SSRI is not actually the best drug for your situation. So the TLDR here is that excitation is driven by dopamine, and it's inhibited by serotonin. SSRIs keep serotonin around longer, therefore decreasing dopamine and decreasing one's ability to get pumped, literally and figuratively. Anywho's, the next topic I want to talk about is how all of this, literally everything I've just told you, was made up by drug companies. In 1998, Pfizer made the drug Viagra, also known as sildenafil, and they released it onto the market to allow men to get boners and have a rich and fulfilled sex life forever and ever, instead of giving it up once their penis did. In its first quarter on the market, Viagra made $400 million, which today would be worth almost $700 million in just three months. Pfizer and other drug companies saw this and they decided to build a similar market for women. However, when a drug is being tested for FDA approval, the FDA has to be able to confirm that the drug can treat an actual disorder. But at that time in history, there wasn't a female version of erectile dysfunction. 
So researchers got together, 94% of whom had financial interests or other relationships with 22 drug companies, and they decided to come up with a disorder for these new drugs to treat. But why would drug companies want to be involved in deciding what makes up a disease or a disorder? Well, a fat paycheck to all of their shareholders, obviously. Regarding the first of many groundbreaking closed-door meetings to develop FSD, the co-chair said the following, The meeting is completely supported by pharmaceutical companies, and approximately half of the audience will be pharmaceutical representatives. The goal is to foster active and positive collaboration between the two groups. Only investigators who have experience with or special interest in working collaboratively with the drug industry have been invited. End quote. That 43% number that I mentioned earlier, saying that 43% of women report sexual dysfunction, well, that was done by two researchers who had very close links with Pfizer. If you actually read the study carefully, it clearly states that after all of the research they conducted, there was clearly not enough evidence to point towards a clinical diagnosis. However, because it didn't fit the agenda, this is just one line in a study sponsored by drug companies trying to push for a diagnosis to match their drug. In a recorded interview with one of the doctors involved in the study, he was asked the following, is there anything actually wrong with these women that you're trying to address? He responded with, well, I, um, I can't answer that question. Dr. Laura Berman who now has her own show on the Oprah Network and is a regular guest host on Dr. Oz, but back in the day, she and her sister were well-known by the public for their work as urologists and sex therapists. She was back then still very prominent on television and was very highly regarded for her work as a sex therapist. While the clinical trials for a drug for FSD were going on, she repeatedly went on talk shows and explained why and how Viagra was just as useful for women as it was for men. She told the masses on TV how women's sexual dysfunction was simply because of a lack of blood flow and that Viagra, which increases blood flow to the sexual organs, was the way to go. She even recommended that every woman use their husband's Viagra whenever they wanted. She explicitly talked up Viagra frequently even after the clinical trials had proved that there was no efficacy of it in women. It later was discovered that both Berman sisters were paid $75,000 a day by Pfizer to talk up Viagra on TV. Again, this was after the clinical trials had proven that it wasn't efficacious for women, but it increased the prescriptions of Viagra, so Pfizer was okay with misleading claims for a little while. After Viagra was kicked out of the running, another took the lead. This one, a testosterone patch for women to wear, which would increase libido, created by Procter & Gamble. This one even made it all the way to the FDA hearing. But unfortunately for P&G, they could only claim that the patch was efficacious and safe for women who had had their uterus removed and were already on oral daily estrogen for their surgical menopause. Plus, there's the minor fact that testosterone supplementation should only be given to people who actually need it, as it has some pretty severe adverse effects, and that your average Josephine woman shouldn't be anywhere near this patch. Luckily, the FDA also recognized the extreme safety risk and that the majority of women still have a uterus, so this drug was also kicked to the curb. In America, that is. It was approved for use in the EU, surprisingly. 
So now we know that the creation of this disorder, female sexual dysfunction, is actually a textbook case of disease mongering by the pharmaceutical industry and big pharma was just trying to convince healthy people that they are sick and require treatment. No one could actually agree on the definition of FSD, how and why it happens in the body, the symptoms of it, or even how to approach research or clinical assessment. This is because it doesn't actually exist as a whole. Of course, there are other conditions that can lead to difficulty or disinterest in sex and even a low libido, but there is not one single disorder that causes female sexual dysfunction that can be remedied with a pill. Men are very simple creatures. Their penis doesn't get hard anymore, we can see that, and we can see why it's happening, and then a pill can be created to fix it. With female sexuality, there is nothing to visualize. As I covered in episode 2, there is no correlation between how wet a woman is and how turned on she is. The only thing that can tell you how turned on a woman is, is that woman using her voice and telling you. And as I explained in episode 2, to turn a woman on, it's more about what you can turn off. Can you turn off the anxiety of having to schlep the kids to soccer and then ballet practice and also finding time to cook a nutritious dinner for the family? Or the stressors of working a minimum wage job and wondering how rent is going to get paid this month? All of these things and much, much more are metaphorical sex breaks. They take up space in a woman's mind and make it very difficult to have room for sexual interest. The director of the Kinsey Institute Dr. John Bancroft spoke on how the term dysfunction is highly misleading. He argues that a decreased libido is in many ways a very healthy and functional response for women faced with stress, fatigue, or threatening patterns of behavior from their partners. He said the danger of portraying sexual difficulties as a dysfunction is that it is likely to encourage doctors to prescribe drugs to change sexual function when the attention needs to be paid to other aspects of the woman's life. It is also likely to make a woman think that they have a malfunction when they do not. Trying to fix a woman not in the mood to boink with a pill is like trying to fix a food allergy without removing the food. But because we live in America, a pill was eventually FDA approved for the diagnosis of female sexual dysfunction. You may even have seen it advertised on TV or in magazines. It's called Flabanserin, or the brand name Addy, A-D-D-Y-I. It's nicknamed the Little Pink Pill, in reference to Viagra's nickname, the Little Blue Pill, and it is specifically for hypoactive sexual desire disorder, aka a low libido. This is a non-hormonal pill, meaning that it doesn't contain estrogen, progesterone, or testosterone. It is what is called a psychotropic medication, and it works directly with serotonin and indirectly with dopamine and norepinephrine. As mentioned earlier, serotonin is the neurotransmitter that puts the kibosh on desire. Serotonin is the inhibitory neurotransmitter that tells the body, nope, and slams on the physiological sex breaks. Addy apparently eases up on the serotonin breaking system so that libido can re-spark. However, like any medication, it doesn't work for everyone, and as we all know, because lowered libido is not caused by one thing, But in clinical trials, it showed to be 10% more effective than the placebo group. If the loss of desire is not situational, something like Addy might be the ticket. However, Addy comes with quite a few serious side effects and even black box warnings. The biggest one is a drop in blood pressure. If you've ever had any issues with low blood pressure, your doctor most likely won't prescribe this drug to you as it is known to severely lower blood pressure and the black box warning is focused around drinking alcohol, 
which you cannot do at least two hours prior to taking Addy or for the next day after taking it. So if you're a college kid looking for a little extra pep in your step when you go to parties, this is not the pep you need or you will be on the floor the entire night. Sedation is also a strong side effect, so not only will your blood pressure bring you to the floor, but you'll most likely fall asleep there too. It's also contraindicated with 46 common medications and should be avoided in 101 common medications. Since I'm obviously not going to list all of those medications, I'll just put it this way. You won't be able to take your Addy while you're taking antibiotics, antifungals, antivirals, antidepressants, heart medications, or even your birth control. So truly, it's not that useful as the majority of Americans are on at least one of those. And yeah, you did hear that right. You can't use Addy if you're also on hormonal birth control. That's because the birth control will cause the Addy to build up in your system, making you much more likely to experience side effects, and you'll just be fainting left and right for funsies. So yay, you get to have more sex, but also you might get pregnant. So I guess it depends on your goals. There's also another drug called Vilesi, which is a self-administered subcutaneous injection, meaning that you have to stab yourself in your belly or your thighs as needed 45 minutes before you want to have sex, which seems a little calculated to me as I don't usually know 45 minutes before I'm going to have sex that that's what I'm going to be doing. And take it from me, stabbing yourself with a needle in the stomach is one of the hardest things to do. I've done it and I've had to sit on the kitchen floor coaxing myself to stab my belly every day and it honestly took me about 45 minutes to actually get it in. So you probably need to budget in doing this about an hour and a half before you actually want to have sex. This drug works differently than Addy. It works through the melanocortin receptors, which was one of those rabbit holes that I went on the past week to better understand. You also can only use Vilesi a total of eight times in one month, which means having sex twice a week. If you're wanting to have sex more often than that, this will not be your fix, as it doesn't stay in your system and work without its actual use. However, what can stay in your system is the consistent and ongoing nausea that can happen after just one use. So yeah, there are some pharmaceutical options out there if you're wanting to give them a try. There's also a few off-label use of medications, most notably bupropion, also known as Welbutrin, which is actually FDA-approved to treat depression and smoking cessation, but clinical trials have proven it to also cause increased sexual pleasure, arousal, and orgasm when compared with placebo. This drug, even though it is used as an antidepressant, is not an SSRI. Instead, it's an NDRI, meaning it doesn't interact with serotonin and instead deals with norepinephrine and dopamine, which would be exactly why it helps with sexual function, because remember, serotonin says no, 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 but dopamine says go, go, go. So if you're getting a little confused here about female sexual dysfunction as a whole, I'm not surprised. I've gone back and forth multiple times about is it real, is it not real, do pharmaceuticals work, do they not work? So many questions with one little disorder. Here's my breakdown. Yeah, low libido is totally real. I've experienced myself, and I've tried to fix it by popping every single herb and supplement that I know. Not being able to orgasm as frequently or efficiently as you would like is also very real. Pain during sex, which we'll get to later. Yeah, super real. But also, these things are totally normal, healthy, and functional. There's nothing wrong with you if you experience any of these things. You are normal. What is not real is seeing these symptoms as a dysfunction or a disorder or disease, which they are not. And just as scratching the hell out of a mosquito bite is a natural reaction, so is not being interested in sex because you have too many things on your mind. 
And pharmaceuticals will work if they're targeting the actual issue that's causing your symptoms. If your symptoms are caused from being stressed out about a huge project at work or being able to get food on the table, Adi, Vilesi, Wellbutrin, and honestly, any other drug is not going to fix that. What will fix it? Well, therapy. It doesn't matter whether it's talk therapy, couples therapy, sex therapy, psychotherapy, whatever fits your situation and your personality is what matters. Here's another plug for BetterHelp. If you're interested in finding a therapist quickly, you can get 10% off your first month if you go to www.betterhelp.com slash speculum. In one study, 65% of couples undergoing sex therapy for a range of sexual dysfunctions described their treatment as successful. That's a great statistic, and therapy is usually a prerequisite to a trial of one of these pharmaceutical drugs that I listed above, meaning that you have to fail at getting better with therapy to be able to be prescribed one of those drugs. Handling your depression or anxiety will greatly improve your problems in the bedroom as well. Another fix? Lifestyle changes, which I will be the first to admit are way easier said than done. Fatigue and stress contribute significantly to low libido and sexual problems for women. It's necessary to treat an underlying sleep problem, adjust your work hours, and find some help with childcare or household responsibilities to get some of that work off of your shoulders. Lack of privacy at home can also contribute to problems, and putting a lock on the door is often not enough of an intervention, as your kid can still stand outside that door and incessantly cry, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy! And they can also potentially hear you enjoying yourself, which might cause you to be more self-conscious, which we all know being self-conscious does not improve your chance of orgasming, unfortunately. On that note, improving your body image. It's also hard to enjoy yourself when you're constantly critiquing your own body or worrying that your partner will see you from the wrong angle and see your cellulite or your tummy rolls and instantly be turned off. One of the best pieces of advice that I've gotten, if you're ever worried about what a man is going to see when he flips you over or if you're in a position where your tummy's flapping about or whatever, is that he is probably just so overwhelmingly happy that he is getting to have sex with you that he doesn't even care and probably doesn't see the same problems that you do. And if he does care, then you can call me and I will end him for you. Because you deserve better, don't let yourself be overrun by people who care more about your body than you do. Another treatment is pelvic floor therapy. I plan to do an entire episode on pelvic floor dysfunction and therapy that I'm really, really excited for. But if you experience losing pee or poop, especially if you pee a little bit when you cough or jump or laugh, or if you have pelvic organ prolapse or chronic pelvic pain, <coughs> see last episode. Pelvic floor therapy is for you. All of these things can be associated with sexual function due to being worried that you could potentially pee or poop on your partner, unless that's something both of you are into and have talked about prior. That's a totally real fear. Or being embarrassed about your giant bladder bulge coming out of your vagina. Pelvic floor therapists can do wonders for helping all of these issues and more. Recent studies have been coming out in favor for the use of platelet-rich plasma, or PRP for short, to better sexual functioning. If you've ever heard of a vampire facial, that is through the use of PRP. In order to obtain PRP, a clinician takes blood usually out of a patient's arm and then spins it down in a centrifuge so that the blood separates into its different components. The solid components, which are red blood cells and white blood cells, platelets, which is blood cells that play an important role in blood clotting and also have a significant number of growth factors that trigger cell reproduction and stimulate tissue regeneration or healing. And the fourth component of blood is plasma. This is the liquid portion of blood. 
So platelet-rich plasma is simply plasma with more platelets than usual. So the blood from the patient's arm is spun down and separated and then injected back into the body in different locations to stimulate healing processes, decreasing pain, and even it can encourage hair growth. When injected into the scalp, for example, don't worry, your vagina isn't going to start sprouting hairs. It's most typically used for tendon, ligament, muscle, and joint injuries to encourage faster healing times. It's also used for post-surgical healing, osteoarthritis, and the aforementioned hair loss. It has been especially effective in treating male pattern baldness, and also it is commonly used for skin rejuvenation and anti-aging. In more nuanced circles, it's being used for lots of other conditions with some really cool and interesting studies going on if you're interested in looking further into that. But for sexual dysfunction, it's considered to be a new revolutionary non-surgical treatment that can help after just one injection. It's nicknamed the orgasm shot or the O shot as it can improve arousal, it can give stronger orgasms and decrease sexual pain as well as increasing natural lubrication. It can be given at any age. It doesn't matter if you are pre or postmenopausal, which is not usually the case with a lot of these treatments. In a 2019 study, there was a 71.4% positive response rate with vaginal PRP injections, which is a pretty solid response. I think in general, this revamps the tissue and would increase sensation in pretty much anybody. You don't have to have a sexual function complaint for this to make you more sensitive. Like, cake is already delicious. Putting icing on it makes it more delicious. Your sex life can already be delicious, but increasing pelvic sensitivity is going to make it that much more delicious, if you catch my feel. But anyways, that's pretty cool technology. There are also some other in-office procedures that can be done, including vaginal natural oxygenation, using lasers, and then what's called transcutaneous temperature-controlled radiofrequency, which is a non-surgical vaginal rejuvenation that uses temperature-controlled radiofrequency to restore vulvar and vaginal tissues which sounds odd, and my non-physics brain is like, wait, how can a radio wave have a temperature? But that's why we have those physics people in our lives to know things like that. There's also at-home devices, my favorite, which is my favorite only because of the name, I've never actually tried it, is the clitoral vacuum, which increases blood flow. But we all know blood flow doesn't actually have anything to do with the sexual response, And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go listen to episode two. It's called The Big Kahuna, and I dive into the female sexual response. I'm impressed you've made it this far without listening to the episode. This is the description from the Vacuum People's website. A small, soft plastic cup is placed over the clitoris. When the clitoral therapy device is then turned on, a gentle vacuum is created, increasing blood flow to the genitalia, causing the clitoris to become engorged. Increased blood flow to the genitalia results in increased vaginal lubrication and enhanced ability to achieve orgasm. However, there has been no data to confirm this, and we all know that it's untrue. Plus, this bad boy costs almost $300, so it's not a cheap option. You know what is a cheap option? Vibrators. And you don't need a prescription to buy one. You can get them at Target or even on Amazon, or you can go to any adult store to find one that speaks to you. Here in Portland, we have a female-powered sex shop called SheBop, which I truly recommend, even though they never responded to my email requesting for a sponsorship, I'm still going to recommend them. Vibrators are great alternatives to vacuums, however, they won't help you clean your house. In my own personal opinion, the best way to treat and heal from sexual functioning dissatisfaction is education, which is why I'm here today yapping on about all of this. 
I truly believe that understanding why your body is doing what it's doing and understanding what it is trying to tell you is the best medicine for anything. Your body is very smart and it knows how to protect itself. If you're too stressed in your daily life to have sex, that also means you're probably too stressed to have a baby. So your primal body is going to say, no, thank you. I don't want that right now. And fully understanding that there is nothing actually wrong with you is a really, really big step. It helped me a lot as I was flipping through the pages of why my libido would be so low when I'm only 28. Well, it's because I'm in med school. I'm anxious all the time. I have people that I have to see regularly who hate me. And I have a history of abuse. All of those things play into my brain telling my body, nope. This is one of the reasons that I'm really excited about starting therapy. And it's hopefully I'll be able to get my vagina and brain back on track. Woo! Next, let's talk about lube. Lubricants are helpful when your body doesn't make enough lubricant, which can happen from certain pharmaceuticals or just aging in general. They can also be helpful with prolonged sexual activity as this tends to dry you up. They're just great in general if you want things to be a little bit slipperier. One thing to be aware of is that lubes are classified by the FDA as cosmetics, which means that they don't require FDA testing and they can often contain skin irritants that can actually make painful sex more painful, like parabens or propylene glycol. So watch out for those two ingredients. There are three types of lubricants, water-based, silicone, and oil-based. Until now, all I remembered from my high school sex ed classes was not to use one of them with condoms because it can cause the condoms to break down. I, of course, didn't remember which one it was, so I just banked on never using lube while using condoms. In case you're in my same boat, it's oil-based lubes. They don't mix well with condoms. So, water lubes are super cost-effective and easy to find. They can be used with latex condoms, and they also won't stain your sheets, which is rad. However, they can be made with glycerin, which is a sugar which has a strong connection with yeast infections, so if you're prone to yeast infections or have diabetes, it's recommended to stay away from the glycerin beast because it can make things worse. These lubes can also become sticky or tacky over time. The second type is silicone. These last the longest of all lubricants and can be used with latex condoms, but there is a thought that they can't be used with silicone sex toys. So if your dildo is silicone, say syllabi to silicone lube just to be safe. The last type of lubricant is oil-based. You can have natural or synthetic oil lubes. For natural, you can just use avocado, coconut, vegetable, or olive oils. These are all safe for many different types of sexual play. You can obviously eat them, and they're safe for the vagina. However, once again, don't use with latex condoms, and these will obviously stain your sheets, as I'm sure you know. If you've ever wiped your popcorn grease on your sheets, it's hard to get off. Maybe that's just a personal problem, I don't know. You can also have synthetic oil lubes. These are basically just lotion or cream, which are readily available, obviously. However, please remember that body lotions should only be used for external masturbation and sex play because that stuff is not safe for your vagina at all. Going back to the whole FDA piece, there are a few brands that make good products that are safe and healthy. They include Imerita, Lola, Good Clean Love, Yes, Aloe Cadabra, Day Alu, Wet Organics, and Blossom Organics. Next, let's chat about moisturizers. But wait, isn't a lubricant a moisturizer? Nope. Lubricants provide short-term relief for vaginal dryness, but moisturizers are for chronic vaginal dryness and are used daily irregardless of sexual activity. 
These are easily compounded by your doctor. If you get it compounded, you can pick your ingredients and also tailor it towards what your body actually needs and wants. Or you can purchase a moisturizer over the counter as well. The mainstay is a topical hyaluronic acid, which helps with tissue hydration and healing. Some common brands are Reverie, Good Clean Love again, and Vagisil. You can also get ones that have different bases like glycerin, polycarbophil, luvina, pectin, vitamin E, or vitamin D. A moisturizer is perfect if you're someone who is going through menopause or is postmenopausal and your body just doesn't make the same amount of juices as it used to. The last thing I want to talk about today is pain disorders. These are officially called genitopelvic pain and penetration disorders, but they include dyspareunia, which is a fancy way of saying that you have pain with sex, and the other disorder is called vaginismus. I wanted to leave these separate as they can have psychosocial causes, but they can also have actual physiological causes as well. Both of these can be lifelong or acquired at some point in one's life, and they actually often overlap with a medical situation. The symptoms of this overarching diagnosis of genitopelvic pain and penetration disorders are tightening of the vaginal muscles with decreased ability or inability to accommodate penetration, tension, pain, or burning felt when penetration is attempted, a decrease in or no desire to have intercourse, avoidance of sexual activity, and or intense phobia or fear of pain. Dyspareunia is the recurrent or persistent genital pain association with sexual intercourse. That is not exclusively from a lack of lubrication or by vaginismus, and of course, it has to cause marked distress or interpersonal difficulty. I'm sure if you're in pain, you're distressed, so that seems like a little silly additional criteria, but I'm not a criteria maker, so I don't know. This is a pretty common disorder with 8-22% to occurring in postmenopausal women. There are some changes in the way that this disorder is being thought of currently. It is being now morphed into a pain disorder that interferes with sexuality instead of a sexual disorder characterized by pain. There are so many things that can cause pain with sex. The most common, and it's the reason why this is very common with postmenopausal women, is a lack of estrogen. You can think of estrogen as the plumping hormone. It plumps up the vaginal tissue and makes it nice and cushy for an egg to nuzzle into your uterus. Once you've passed the finish line of menopause, you have much less estrogen flowing through your body and therefore much less cushiness, and that can make your tissue a little bit more crunchy, which is definitely painful if you try to push a round peg through an oblong hole that it's not wanting to stretch. Infection, interstitial cystitis, recurrent vaginal tears, anatomical changes, <clears throat> childbirth, endometriosis, the positioning of your uterus, and banging for too long can all cause pain with sex. Please remember that that list was not exhaustive, but it did kind of exhaust me while saying it. An important distinction to make is that there is commonly pain the first time you have sex. As discussed in episode 1, this is most often not due to your hymen breaking and is more due to vaginal tears as your vagina isn't used to being moved around like that. If you're continuing to have pain after your first boink, then it's time to be evaluated by a doctor. To all my young listeners out there, your doctor has loyalty to you and they cannot tell your parents what you discuss unless they are worried that there is a safety threat either to you or someone else. So it is totally okay to talk to your doctor about these things and any other sex ed questions that you may have. We are always happy to help, and we are always happy to talk about these things, and they're a lot less uncomfortable for us to talk about than it might seem. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable talking with your doctor, email me and we can chat. That's what I'm here for anyways. 
The next genitopelvic pain disorder is vaginismus. This is a recurrent or persistent involuntary spasm of the muscles surrounding the outer third of the vagina. This can also be lifelong or it can be acquired. It can be something that is genetic as well. It can also be something that happens secondary to an event or a situation in somebody's life. For some women, the muscle spasms are so intense that they can't even put in a tampon. Others, it's only related to sexual activity, and some it's out of fear for a pelvic exam. This is a relatively uncommon disorder, with 1-6% to of the population reporting it, but it is thought to be the most common female psychosexual dysfunction. For the women who acquire it, the most common risk factors are living in a non-conducive sociocultural environment, sexual trauma, or a background of religious orthodoxy. If you are consistently told that sex is a sin or it's bad, then that unfortunately can have negative ramifications on one's sex life once they're an adult. In fact, 90% of cases have psychosocial causes, while the other 10% can be due to gynecological disorders, chronic medical conditions, and medication usage. There are lots of ideas towards treating this disorder, and the goal is to desensitize the fear that penetration will be painful while also helping the woman to regain the sense of control over a sexual encounter or a pelvic exam. Many of these women can reach complete healing, and if not, many are still able to experience orgasms and sex play without vaginal penetration. That's all I have for you guys today. Phew, that was a long one. My partner said that because I was so late in getting this episode to you, you deserved more, so I guess giving you guys an extra long episode today was how I attained that. The sassy staples of today's episode are as follows. One, female sexual dysfunction is not actually a dysfunction. It was created by the pharmaceutical industry in order to sell pills to healthy women. Two, having difficulty with libido, arousal, and orgasm is very common, and women face it every day. You are not alone, and you are normal. Three, you can achieve healing from these problems by taking weight off of your shoulders, learning to manage stress better, taking time for yourself, and getting some therapy to better show you what is the most important in your life. Education and understanding your body's telltale signs is critical. And four, medications, especially antidepressants and antibiotics, have a serious effect on your sexual function. Talk with your doctor about these side effects before you pop that pill. Thank you all for listening this far. I apologize for the weird sick voice that you've had to listen to this entire time. And I think my sick brain went a little crazy in there for a little bit. But I'm so happy that you're here. I love hearing from you guys about what you think about each episode. It really, really helps me to better tailor these episodes for my listeners instead of just what I think is interesting. So please reach out and let me know what you thought. As always, please leave a rating or a view on whatever platform you're listening to. This helps to get the podcast out into the world and it also really helps me. And if you're enjoying Sassy Speculum, share it with your friends and your family, whoever you think might want a little bit more insight into what's going on inside. You can contact me at sassyspeculum at gmail.com or on my socials at sassyspeculum. You can also leave me an anonymous note at www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum. And if you've listened this long, send me an email and let me know. I've decided to do a giveaway of some products and would love to send you something for supporting my podcast endeavors. You can email me again at sassyspeculum at gmail.com. That's all for today. Thank you again, Sassy Speculumites. Bye!